Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now. But I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. From our respective quarantine headquarters in downtown Toronto, here's episode 299, Poltergeist. Poltergeist, the movie that scared the shit out of me when I was a little kid. Uh, Wow, I honestly can say that... Through the haze of time, I'm not even sure if I even saw this as a kid. And it could be that that iconic clip of Heather O'Rourke reaching into the TV made me think I have. But who knows? I, what is interesting is I think this is a great movie to be talking about in the middle of COVID-19 because this is something that scares us that we can't see, but what we know is there. By interest. Well- it's interesting because, I mean, I feel like right, uh, for kids of the 80s, of which we are, watching Poltergeist is a uh, rite of passage. I'm surprised you haven't seen it. Well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But I, I, on the positive side, I'm hoping uh, if I did that anyway, that it would not have colored my revisiting because this is haunted and the scenes are so, uh, I mean, the, the Spielberg imprimatur through Toby Hooper as his muse. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's up for debate as to who directed this film. It's so let's get into it then. So you, it scared the crap out of both my girlfriend and you. Uh, mm-hmm. You guys growing up, she told me that she looked like Heather Rourke as a kid. Heather Rourke, yeah. And the iconic uh, locks, and the, I think every child of that age has that hairdo, but it must have resonated so greatly with well, kids of that, that age. With me, my uh, my mother rented it, and it was a PG-rated film, so I guess she had the bright idea to have me and my sister watch it. I must have been about seven or eight years old, and I'm watching this thing, and between the clown and the tree, I'm not into it. As you know, I'm not... <laughs> I'm, I, horror was something that, that uh, I developed an appreciation for later in life, and I was not into it. And by the time we got to the scene with the uh, with the mirror and the face clawing, I was out. I was in my bedroom, hiding under my covers. I was done. So I, I, I didn't see it. I saw it as a kid, but I only saw half of it as a kid. Now, how did Sherry respond? Uh, Sherry's got nerves of steel, my sister. I think she watched the whole thing. Oh, my God. She was having slumber parties watching horror movies like five years before I could even watch... Uh, a single scene from a movie. Full disclosure, I mean, this is my least favorite genre. So uh, I came to this with, I mean, minimal expectations. And mm-hmm. I would say that they were eclipsed. It was weird because I did not expect this type of movie. I expected more changeling, let's say, less. This really reminded me of Close Encounters of a Third Kind, which I'm not well, a fan of. Weirdly. It's interesting that you say that because this movie was developed because Spielberg wanted to make a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and he wanted to make it more uh, frightening, and the studios just wouldn't give him the green light for it, so he developed Poltergeist instead. And he was also in the middle of uh, developing E.T. at the same time. 
E.T. and Poltergeist came out one month apart from one another. Yeah, that's amazing. And contractually, he was not able to slap his name on Poltergeist. Uh, hence, well, you know, not as a director, but as a producer, yeah. Oh, my God. It's so weird because this is a, a, a tangent, but I just recently saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I thought was over long, but yet fun. I was on board with it in a way that mm -hmm. I really wasn't. And these are two different films, but Close Encounters was very long as well. And it just meandered and meandered. And both of these things were like two and a half hours plus. And yet I was comfortable with Tarantino and I was on board. And Close Encounters, despite having all this critical accolades, I just couldn't get into it. I just and The stylistic touches of the two films are so apparent because Spielberg uses the flashbulb effect with the lights flashing that he used uh, with shining these lights through aquariums which I thought was really awesome, but Interesting. basically mm -hmm. they're I, pretty much the same film, even though they're different plots, so, but I don't know. I, this resonated with me. You're talking about uh, Close Encounters and Poltergeist? Yes. Uh, yep. Poltergeist resonated with me a lot more. Maybe it's just because the nostalgia was just dialed up to a thousand, and I just it, it was like a warm blanket. I felt so cozy with these people. And that was <laughs> Well, that's one of the things that uh, may, is responsible for this movie's success is that the Freelings just feel like a real family. I mean, there's a real sort of uh, innate organic chemistry between the characters, and when all the scary shit starts happening to them, and it pretty much happens right off the get-go, I mean, there's not a lot of wasted time in this movie, you really feel for this family. You feel for the young parents, you feel for the kids. I can relate. I was, my sister had a clown doll when I was a kid that scared the shit out of me, and that was probably another reason why I had trouble getting through this film when I was all of around six or seven years old. Hey, well, as far as clown scares go, I mean, that was really iconic and incredible, and it just makes it so much, I don't know, it just came out of nowhere. Maybe it was the bed scene, uh, I don't know, but the, I think the clown was used to great effect twice. I think with with uh, the young kid's br little brother, uh, whose buck teeth, I mean, were a, a, a scare unto themselves, my God. <laughs> Oh, no, I was going to say that uh, it, it's very, very interesting because, you know, it, again, there is this um, debate as to who di directed this film, Toby Hooper or Steven Spielberg. And, of course, Toby Hooper, most famous for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of which this film looks nothing like, whereas E.T. is uh, a film that is Spielberg is most famous for. And the beginning of this movie looks like it seems straight out of E.T. I mean, you have an everyday, idyllic, any-place American suburb, and you have kids riding their bikes around, and you have, you know, Star Wars bed sheets in the kids' uh, room and all these different Star Wars uh, bric-a-brac and memorabilia. And it's all to create some sense of normalcy, like a real sense of this is a real just white picket fence suburban community. Not white picket fence, but whatever. And it's interesting how that just becomes upended so quickly in this one house in this community. Yeah, it's weird. I've never seen a, a director, and let's say Spielberg directed this, because we all know he really did. Let's yeah. give a nod to another director so flagrantly. It's weird. Usually you touch on your own uh, work or that of, like, cultural touchstones, and you spread them out. But, my God, like, is he bosom buddies with George Lucas? Like, that was really weird. Like, never seen so much Star Wars stuff in my life. Oh, yeah, well, they're great friends. That's, uh, that's oh. well documented. Oh, okay. That was really interesting. But yeah, as you said, with the, this family is so, I mean, it's so relatable, and this neighborhood they're in is so, 
so just boring. So everyday America just. It reminds me of like the eastern part of Toronto, the suburbs that were the houses. You can't differentiate one from another, and it's uh-huh. and you don't know when one city starts and another begins. One beginnings, another beginnings end, or whatever. And it's just these cookie cutter developments, and that'll play uh, later on because you know obviously it's not much of a spoiler because everyone's seen this at this point, but the evil developer and the uh, messing around with the grave uh, grave is like such a yeah. trope that goes back to, I mean, the 60s era horror. And it's like, oh, don't mess with the grave site. And you're, you're <laughs> don't understand. Which makes you think, was it a really small grave that only affected the acreage of the Freelings house? <laughs> it seemed like this, this is a sprawling, like, large state. This is supposed to be California. I mean, mm-hmm. is real estate so hard to come by that they couldn't give that a little bit of a wider berth? I mean, but my God, the, I mean, the... Uh, poltergeist and the otherworldly figures, their reach is, is vast, and they were able to, well, yeah, why that one backyard? Exactly. Yeah, very awesome. Like, you would think the grave would have at least extended to two or three neighbors as well, but it was really just a freeling house. Yeah, considering it's a cookie-cutter, like, uh, suburban development with all these, uh, right, uh, made-to-order, uh, whatever, homes of two or three styles, this presumably was the whole neighborhood that affected this uh, this grave site. So not yet. It could, it could have easily affected the, him and all his neighbors. And, the neighbors and it's do, funny, too, because – sorry, go ahead. Oh, the neighbors do feature kind of prominently later on in the film as well. But it's – yeah, they, 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 they've got their – he's their bugbear. The, the, yep. the and, and also, they mentioned that the Freelings were the first to move into the subdivision. So of all the homes to give them, the developer has to give them the one right on top of the uh, – the abandoned grave site. Oh, I guess, yeah, he did get that because this is his company, and we're talking about the wonderful Craig T. Nelson, and I roll my eyes. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it from Coach, of course. Yeah. Uh, he's the one who's given, like, a, maybe a discount because he is his company, and he's a real estate real estate business type, and so his company makes the development, and therefore he gets a house in this development in order to showcase it. So, yeah, I guess that's the tenuous tie. It's funny, Coach. Like it's it's like the Celine Dion album phenomenon. Like I've never met anyone who has a Celine Dion album. I can say without question, I've never met a soul who had anything to say about Coach. You ready? I watched it briefly. I watched it. It never came up in conversation with anybody. With <laughs> friends. Like why is that? We watched it. I loved it, man. Really? Yeah. What was it? Dawburn was one of the characters, and uh, Jerry Van Dyke. Oh, there's some big galoot linebacker with a bowl cut who looked Swedish. Yeah, that was Dauber, I believe. And he just, uh, the University of Minnesota or something, I don't I don't, that was such a misbegotten effort, I don't know. <laughs> I was a big, big fan of coach, I must say. And that was... Oh, I was going to say, like Craig T. Nelson, like I don't know how exactly, I guess he kind of equipped himself fairly well in this, sort of this hirsute, <laughs> every man boring suburban dad with not even a dad body. Like he needs to work out to get a dad body. <laughs> but the parents are really relatable. I mean, in the sense, like, when you, know, you see them upstairs, when they think their kids are asleep and they're smoking joints and everything, I thought that was kind of a nice little touch to make them seem just a bit more relatable as parents than your average uh, cinematic um, duo. That's a bit surprising. I don't know whether that would have been uh, Hooper's touch or Spielberg, because that's for sure. I would not have expected uh, mm-hmm. a reference to um, the Mary Jane in that, but I thought that was weird. And, of course, the mother, Mrs. Freeling, is your typical, like, 
slender, no boobs, like brunette that just seemed so ubiquitous in the 80s. Like, I don't know what it was. Like, she's like the every mom, and she was great, too. And their dynamic. No, Beth Williams, of course. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, but, of course, I mean, Heather O'Rourke's really the star. And, of course, she was taken from us uh, after th- being involved in three films. I, I can honestly say I have not seen Poltergeist 2 or 3. Nor have I. Nor have I. Driven the proceedings. And she's such a terrific little actress, and I think mm-hmm. Spielberg, you know, found her in some, I guess, commissary on the Hollywood backlog. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because uh, Drew Barrymore auditioned for the role of uh, Carol Freeling and uh, didn't get the role because Spielberg wanted someone a little more angelic looking, of which Heather O'Rourke uh, certainly does have that quality, but that's what led Spielberg to eventually cast uh, Drew Barrymore in E.T., which, of course, he was in pre-production for at the time. So it's interesting here because with most supernaturals of this ilk where you have a a household being affected, there's the actual house that's imbued with a kind of spirit of evil. And I'm thinking burnt offerings or... You're talking about the actual edifice itself? Yeah, or um, let's say the changeling where it's got this sordid history. Or hell, you could throw in the Overlook Hotel with its history and... Uh, and how it makes people lose their marbles, like we're doing during COVID-19 here. Exactly. This one, I felt that it was the sprites were somewhat diminished by not having that. So you find out later that it's tied to this weird graveyard, but there's an interface through the television that was interesting, but it was not something that I really associate with a good old-fashioned home-based well, I mean, you know, the the lineage of that went all the way to the ring, right? With the video cassette and the TV and everything, but... Oh, I thought you were going to say Demons 2, but... <laughs> and Demons 2, I forget, of course, how can I forget that? <laughs> it's just like, I love that as an idea, but I would have liked to have seen more, more house-related scares, because most of it is coming from the outside in or from the inside out, if that makes sense. So there's a medium television that's in which the young girl finds herself trapped watching this, what, what is that called, white noise? What's that, static? White noise, exactly. Static white noise. And, uh... It's sucked in, but the house is not what's driving it. It's sort of external forces. And we see mm-hmm. in these incredible storms, and we see that through this kind of fake tree that they built the house right beside it. Dude, that tree scared the living shit out of me, that knotted tree. And then when it, when it, spoiler alert, ate the boy, so to speak, I mean, the boy did survive, but holy shit, it scared me as a kid and it scared me today. I got to admit, that was pretty neat. And it scared me, I think, more than the boy's Donnie Darko rabbit teeth. I mean, my God. (laughs) Right in the middle, but oh my God. And what was also weird about this, so I'm, I was on board with that as a conceit because it's really interesting to suck someone in through television, which is obviously the, the influence of TV at the time was so ubiquitous, not to mention the nascent uh, VHS technology. That's interesting. But then the movie morphs into... They're here. here. Yeah, which is almost the TV like people. a throwback to uh, They're Coming to Get You, Barbara, from George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. It's very similar. That's a, Or even... Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, when the wonderful Kevin McCarthy is running around saying, you know, with his big screen and saying they're here, they're out there, out to get you, et cetera, et cetera. That's a great conceit. And I think where, and that's where I think the movie came alive, but where it faltered was when it did too much, uh, at least as far as I was concerned, uh, Ghostbusters type thing, where you have these 
spirit chasers or whatever you want to call them, uh, spirit medium types, and they get hired to come on board when when uh, the daughter goes missing, and she's missing inside this whatever other world television. And I thought that was kind of ridiculous because they come in with their equipment, and I was kind of lost. The horror aspect of this film lost me there when you had these. Uh, you know, almost analog to Bill Murray and, and Aykroyd skulking around. And it was, it was but, kind of weird to me. Mm-hmm. Well, what was interesting is that they were affected by the uh, by the poltergeist as well. And like I said before, one of them went into the bathroom. And, uh, well, first of all, when he made that stake, and the stake moved of its own volition, and then the maggots came out, that was pretty pretty freaking scary. Talk about a rare stake, you know? That was, that was pretty, you know? But That was definitely a rare stake. And then uh, I, hope that, I hope that wasn't Kobe beef. Yeah. But then when, <laughs> but then when they when he went to the bathroom, like I said before, I mean, how how the hell this movie got a PG rating? When you have a guy go into a bathroom, start washing his face, and then start tearing away at it, to the point that he's revealing his skull. And like I said before, when I was a kid, like that was it for me. That was all she wrote. Tapped me out. I was done. That was scary as fuck. And I mean, back then it, there was no PG thirteen rating, so it was either going to be a PG. Or an R, and Spielberg, with the cloud he had, was able to lobby it to, an, to a PG rating. But they wanted to give this baby an R rating, and I really think it should have had an R rating. That that was practically Fulci-esque. The maggots and the face pulling—that was badass. But that was really at odds with a sort of almost uh, good-natured, happy-go-lucky Ghostbusters-type element. Well, what took me out mm-hmm. of the scare there was that when them, when they were videotaping the proceedings, because that's a scare removed. So you're already, when you're not scared enough that you keep videotaping things, then it removes my scare or diminishes in, in part. So they're trying to capture all these, the goings-on in this house, and i got to say, they're pretty terrific, and the most famous would be the assemblage of furniture on top of the table, which was a one-take amazing That was incredible, yep. When uh, Mrs. Freeling is trying to convey to her husband just what's been happening, and you know, they they look away for an instant, and all of a sudden, this, I mean, I don't know, this assemblage happens right in the dining room, and that was really cool, and it's just interesting to see that. Well, that was an incredible thing to put together, but it was also very unique in terms of ghost-type scares. I mean, who would have yeah. thought to, I mean, and this was, of course, the de rigueur rattan furniture of the 80s. I don't know what it was about the 80s. Everyone had stupid rattan chairs. We had rattan. We had those... <laughs> like heart shaped to the back. We had those. Yeah, Everyone I think we did too. Like, were they like given out to people in suburbia? Like, well, I don't know. I, I do remember that there was this, uh, in suburbia there was a store entitled the Rattan Boutique that we frequented quite often as uh, as a family in the eighties. So Rattan was big. <laughs> I think Pier One Imports was another one, and uh, yeah, and, uh, I don't Pier One Imports for sure. Good God, but I mean, yeah, it was just such a, so many interesting ways they could have, they did scare people, but I think the more people you have in in a ghost story as this one is, the, it diminishes the fright, especially when everyone is together. So when you have the Ghostbusters coming in and everyone's in a line trying to track it, and then they one-up it with even adding to the proceedings with a psychic played by Zelda Rubenstein, who is... Not the Rubenstein, yeah. Amazing. I mean, she cut such an interesting figure too because she's so tiny and she's so she's almost like Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Like she's in a weird kind of way, but I think the actress herself is like four foot tall 
and she comes in and she just steals the show. This commands proceedings. Oh man, that that was incredible. So I thought like the beginning, badass, incredible interface between mm -hmm. television and kid, uh, and then a saggy middle with the Ghostbusters, and then a bang up finale of just rip roaring action. So that's mm -hmm. how I sort of see this film. Well, I was I was on board from beginning to end, and it's interesting because you talk about having a fright once removed when you're recording it, and how that how that uh, sort of diminishes the scares. But you look at movies like um, the Insidious series, the uh, uh, what uh, Paranormal Activity, and I'm not saying that those are great movies. I don't like those movies very much. But the fact is, where would they be without Poltergeist? That's what those movies were. They were basically recording scares. Uh, I guess, but you're not recording as you're doing it. Like the, the fright happens when they look back, in the case of Paranormal Activity, to that vibrating uh, figure, and that was scary because you're seeing this for the first time as a viewer. Whereas okay. If someone's videotaping in real time as the scare is happening, it's not as impactful. And I thought the same thing about Blair Witch, right? I mean you got to put your camera down and then deal with the scares as is. So that's like a minor quibble because this was pretty pretty interesting stuff, and they really distributed the scares pretty well. Yeah, so the guy they parsed about the scares perfectly. Yep. Uh, Rabbit Tooth there got the, got the brunt of a, a lot of it, and uh, you got to say, yeah, the, the kid's bedroom is just so awesome. Like, the mise-en-scene is so perfect. Like, talk about an 80s kid with a football helmet, and for some reason, at the foot of his bed, he's got this ridiculous... This clown is really ridiculous. Like, it looks like a projector. Like it's really yeah. life-sized, which makes it more impactful than a typical, like even a monkey doll. Like as a kid, did you not have some sort of boy or something that your parents put in your room and it was a birthday gift or something and they just put it there and left it there and you fucking hated it? Because I had a clown doll just like that. Or my sister did, or one of us did. I can't remember, but I know we had a clown doll just like that. And it was in one of our respective rooms. I had some weird-ass toys made in Germany because, you know, my family's half German. And oh, yeah, they make some weird-ass toys. And what's weird about them is they're frequently made out of wood, so they have this odd, uh, almost verisimilitude of being extra real. I have this frog that's about, like, a foot and a half wide. It has wooden eyes that are on top of it, like a flounder almost, so these wooden round ball eyes and they're painted red. It's like wooden eyes. It's so bizarre. I wish I had it on me. It's quite terrific. It's the crap. What was the name What was the name of that German character? He was in a lot of fairy tales. It was like something like Peter or something, and he was, it was, they were just terribly gruesome fairy tales, and they were used to scare kids, as most fairy tales are. Yeah, oh, I can't remember. Oh, but I probably have a book on my shelf of these. Oh, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. I do indeed. <laughs> God. Well, this had some sort of fairy tale elements to it as well, and yeah, I don't know. What what's, what was sort of a highlight for you and sort of a low light? To me, there really wasn't any low lights. I mean, I was on board from the very beginning to the very end. I mean, this was a movie that kept me going. If anything, I could say the low, the low lights for me were just some of the uh, special effects that appear dated, but I can't fault the film for that at all. I mean, they used the technology that was available to them at the time. Uh, the highlights for me, I mean, I was going to say this for what did we learn, but I'll just say it now. Like, this was a film... You, know, you talk about films and iconic moments, and some films are lucky to have one iconic moment or two iconic moments. This is a film that was chock full of iconic moments. I mean, besides Caroline talking to TV, besides her calling the TV people and saying they're here, you had the knotted tree, you had the clown doll, you had the vent cutlery. That was pretty cool. 
You had the face-melting scene. You had the baseballs being thrown into the light. You had go into the light, that line. You had the skeletons in the swimming pool. I mean, they're just it was just one fright after another, after another, after another. It's just really, it's really hard to talk about any lowlights because this was just a, a movie that was on full throttle. It was fantastic. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of what is it, Yuri Geller, who's that psych, uh, that the telepathist who would, is that even what they're called? Who would bend spoons and then he got, bend spoons with his mind, yeah. Yeah, and then he got exposed by some skeptic on on TV. It was like, oh yeah, yeah. I was it uh, was it James Randi that exposed him? Yes, yeah, the magician. Yeah, uh, that's man. But yeah, you're right. I guess they did pack a lot of frights into a varying kinds into this little movie. But I guess I'm more, I uh, I don't know. Uh, I just I prefer kind of uh, more solitude from my supernatural scare films and less uh, I don't know gung ho camaraderie amongst like seven people. But so you're more into the changeling sort of thing, where it's one man versus uh, on Twitter recently they had five perfect movies trending. I think it was two days ago, and I mean perfect movies when you want to talk like I mean the changeling has to be up there. It's just one of it's superlative supernatural. It's it's stupendous. I mean, it's like it's just I, I can't elevate it high enough. So this one, yeah, I mean, it, it's really fun and really good. And if if I'm not as articulate as I, I would normally be today, apologies. Uh, dealing with our new technology and like everyone trying to cope with this uh, pandemic the best we can. So we're using a combination of phones and Skype, and we're hoping this technology, uh, you know, comes through and serves us well here. So so what did you learn, Chris? Oh, well, uh, I was watching a little thing about Heather O'Rourke because uh, I, thought, I found it incredibly sad how someone this gifted was taken from the world. So Well, don't forget, the uh, before we get to Heather O'Rourke, the actress who played the eldest daughter was murdered shortly after the film was released. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to touch on what we've learned, that this production, and I'm talking about the three films, is so fraught with negative death. Yeah, yeah. And, and horrible occurrences and people associated with it having these terrible things happen to them. And O'Rourke, I found out, was really bankrolling her family, which had fallen on tough times and they lived, I think, in a trailer park. And so this girl's earnings were really helping them out. And then they, I guess she contracted that what they thought was like a Lyme disease type thing on a camping trip, but really she had some congenital intestinal issue that had nothing to do with whatever some uh, bug or bacteria picked up in a, in a pond or, or a lake or anything. So she wasn't maybe treated with the best care at first. They didn't know what was going on, and she succumbed to it at a young age. And I think in part three she was pumped full of steroids. And yeah, she was really bloated and everything, yeah. Just makes mm -hmm. me feel awful. And then I apparently, well, another thing I learned is that she's buried next to, uh, in, in Los Angeles, next to Truman Capote, of fame, uh, the, the famous journalist. I mean, well, what in the hell? Like, that seems such an odd, but she's in a cemetery with lots of uh, accomplished, famous people. And I think is that the uh, Hollywood Forever Cemetery? It might be. I think Norman Fell is there, or like just all these sort of weird assemblage of mm -hmm. disparate people. Maybe Jackie Collins, like such a fucked up, like, Group of people all in the same <laughs> it's, 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 it's like the Père Lachaise in France. Uh, oh, Jim Morrison? Or? Yeah, Jim Morrison and uh, Edith Piaf and uh, Oscar Wilde and uh, you name it. It just goes on and on. Modigliani, et cetera, et cetera. Well, being sucked into a television, I mean, as a metaphor, is basically what I'm encountering here. I'm never 
been so grateful for having unlimited bandwidth. Like I'm bandwidth hogging like nobody's business, and I'm going, I'm going down the rabbit hole of, of Manson of late, and because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it rekindled my interest in all things Manson, and uh, uh, I think he's an L.A. Times reporter. There's a guy who was on Joe. Sorry, did you say all things Hanson? Or? Oh, yeah, of course. Mbop. <laughs> Mbop, yeah? You're listening to that on repeat now? No, I'm he's saying Mbop to my son. It's kind of embarrassing. He does say Bop, a lot, like he's, he's developing words. But, yeah, yeah there, there was a L.A. Times reporter who's, like, got this book about Manson. Uh, he says that there was more killings linked to the family. So I've just been going down that rabbit hole and I'm so glad we're podcasting again because feels good to be doing it again. It feels great. And we took a little hiatus that wasn't COVID related. It's book related. So I'm going to get to what you learned soon. But why we took a few weeks off is that we're putting on the finishing touches on Mine's Bigger Than Yours, The 100 Wackiest Action Movies, which is our latest offering. And it's a genre film it's our latest tome. It's, oh, it's a wonderful tome. Like I'm, so we're we're reading the galleys right now, and it's going off to our editor uh, this week, finally. And the cover is, and the cover is badass. Like the forward by uh, Ryan Spencer Smith, genre yeah, icon. Yeah, Stunt Rock, uh, Strike of the Panther, Curse of the Panther, all this stuff. And then drive-in, et cetera, turkey shoot, yeah, you name it. It's so cool like what he wrote for us, and we're excited and thrilled and chuffed, as they say in the U.K., by the finished product, which is um, incredible. It's divided into nine chapters into different subgenres of action, including, uh, we, we don't want to spoil it, but we have a celebration of covert operations, undercover action movies. We have female action heroes, so we wanted to celebrate all the best in ladies. Superheroes. Oh, it's great stuff. So we, yeah. you guys continue to support the show. And, we're and all, all I can say before you is that, oh, sorry, you're, I know you're going to give the little plug there, but I was going to say, if you liked our last book, that's by Umbrella, The 100 Weirdest Horror Movie Weapons, you're going to love this book. Yeah, I think it's actually better. And I, know I think so, too. Like Two-bit indie band says, or, or band in general says, oh, our latest album is always our best. But I legitimately think that this is the best work because it's uh, some of the horror stuff is very dark, and but this is all these movies are very silly, so we were able to bring a lot of fun and factoids, but also uh, just a, a similar love for the genre that we did with Death by Umbrella, which has a really good forward as well. Like kudos to uh, Lloyd Kaufman. Lloyd Kaufman, yeah. So when's the release date, Chris? It's going to be September or October, I think end of September, but you can pre-order it on Amazon. So. I was going to say, when's it available for sale? Now. Now. So, yeah, if, you, if everyone's hunkered down uh, because of the pandemic, then you get catch up on your reading by all means. It's a good, everyone needs escapism right now, so uh, turn to that. So the title again, and uh, you'll, you might know it from the title because it references a very famous action genre film. So mine's bigger than yours is the title. So check it out. And uh, oh, so yeah, but so that aside, let's get back to uh, what you learned here before we give our star rating. Yeah, no, I mean, I didn't mention what I learned earlier in terms of like the, just a plethora of iconic moments in this movie. But the other thing I learned is that it's interesting how sometimes things that scare the living shit out of you as a kid retain their power to scare you as you get older. This one didn't as I watched it. Uh, I wasn't scared. I was more just sort of fascinated by how uh, – Masterful, it was put together by, quote-unquote, Toby Hooper, but really Steven Spielberg. 
But just because something doesn't quite scare you as you get older doesn't mean it, it diminishes in its artistry. And this one really, I think, maintain its artistry quite well. So I'm going to go into my star rating right now and say, I'm going to give this one four and a half stars, Chris. You might be surprised. But yeah, no, I, I was on board from start to finish. It's always good to have a nice tree scare as well, as uh, given that you're such a huge fan of the Evil Dead and that, which has the tree scare of all time, really. So, but this one, well, yeah, I, I jumped a couple times, that's for sure. So, I mean, uh, I, I really love that one uh, clown scare that was really fantastic. But there are others. The face pulling was fantastic and full chiet. I'm going to give this a three and a quarter. I okay. enjoyed it, but I thought that, again, there's uh, too many cooks kind of in the middle that took away from it, but the performances all across the board are really fun, and it's just uh, a warm blanket of nostalgia, but not in a bad way. I, I find when uh, movies try and ape this kind of feel and sensibility that the decade had, they, it tends to fall short, and, or TV series as well. I, really, I, I don't really get an 80s vibe from Stranger Things. Really? That's, that's hilarious, because I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan as well, but I, I'm not transported to the 80s. Like, I feel like I'm in a, a current version of the 80s, but I'm not in the 80s. I, Interesting. I think the actors are too current, and it's a fantastic show. It's very charming, but I don't, I'm not in, transported back in the way that I am in, let's say, the Goldbergs, which is just so full of 80s. Like, you can't, I'm not a big fan of the show, although I, lo I love Jeff Garland from Curb Your Enthusiasm. I like the Goldbergs. But I'm not, like, it's a fun show, but I'm, I don't watch it regularly. So that is full of 80s. But this one, I mean, my God, it's just such a pain to the pan, whatever the hell it is. Pian? 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 in the corner? Board? P-A-E-A-N. However you say yeah. it. I've only read it. I've never heard it. So exactly. It's a pan, whatever you say it. <laughs> in a way that no, few films are. I mean, this is really... If you had a, the luxury of growing up during that time, this will just bring it all back. And this is a really, I mean, undoubtedly charming effort. And it'll be interesting as we re revisit some of these films that were really impactful to us as kids, and to mm -hmm. saying more to you in this case. But let's say Gremlins or uh, that kind of, we're going to be touching on these as we further the podcast beyond episode 300 yeah. and beyond that even, and maybe even to 400 because we enjoy it. It'll, it'll be so great to both visit for the first time some I iconic touchstones and revisit and see how uh, we view them through uh, our, you know, cynical, jaundiced, jaded eyes of today. No, no, we're still and, and, you know, think about these. Yeah, and, and, and too, I, I wanted to mention they did remake Poltergeist, I believe, in 2015, but, I mean, that must have been completely forgettable because I, I didn't even remember it being remade until I IMDb'd uh, Poltergeist to get, a little, uh, get to do some research, get some factoids. And the remake came up, so that was that to start. Sam Rockwell was a great actor, but the movie must it was really there was really no need. I mean, except for updating some wonky special effects, wonky by today's standards, there really was no need to remake Poltergeist. The movie, as far as I'm concerned, I gave it four and a half stars. It's perfect to begin with. So yeah, and that's a perfect place to end the show. So uh, apologies to listeners if this feels a little tinny. That we're doing our best here to uh, to maneuver uh, and pivot according to what's all going on. It's funny, in my day job, I'm a reporter and, and covering business, and I cover brands and marketers who are doing advertisements from home, and they're doomed to doing whatever they can, and using whatever they can find at their disposal, because no one can go out and shoot 
creative content. So it's really funny. Everyone, no matter what sector you're in, is pivoting and adjusting to, to these circumstances. Well, it's like my sister said, television has become YouTube because everybody's basically just uh, sitting at the camera and shooting things from home. So you watch your late night talk shows, it's like a YouTube video. Yeah, it's really it's crazy times, and hope our listeners are able to uh, withstand the uh, you know the, the serious economic impact that we're all feeling and health. It's a really and stay safe, of course. Stay safe and uh, wash your hands and uh, do all that good stuff, and continue to enjoy our podcast. In in the coming weeks, we're going to have some action stuff that will be really fun. But we're going to try and keep the balance as we do normally with uh, all genres represented, but with predominantly you know action and horror, predominantly horror. And 300, we're excited to record a new episode for that because it's a pretty big milestone too. So 300, here we come, and uh, you know, new book, here we come, and hopefully uh, physical distancing has eased to the point where we can do an actual physical launch and don't have to sign our copies of our book virtually like Margaret Atwood or whatever thing she she you know designed. You know, people and sign books and like yeah, and then do a like a proper launch and have. Uh, stuff be available in stores, so that would be really cool. We're really excited sure. to see what it has to offer, and we shall talk to you soon. All right, take care. Mm-hmm.